Well, How are you guys? I'm super happy. I'm super happy. Because I'm not that guy. You guys don't know what I learned? Apple Music uses data. From Netflix? Data? Uh, no. What year is this? <laughs> Holding. I don't like this when you guys gang up on me. It's episode 100 and... One Woo! of the EdTech Loop podcast. My name is Larry Burden, and she's got 2020 vision. It's Danielle Grostrom. And visiting us from the island of misfit toys, it's the technologist, David Noller. Yeah, I feel like I live there. <laughs> it was not far from the truth, for sure. No. Before we end the year, we must begin with this week's moment of zen. Mm-hmm. For last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice. And to make an end is to make a beginning. All right, the brain pan is sizzling and ready to deep fry this week's meat of the show. EdTech tools for the new year. So what can we look forward to in this coming year? You know, looking forward, um, and we just had the moment of Zen about looking back too. I wasn't going to bring this up, but when you couch it in the what can we look forward to idea, Uh, There's some pretty significant updates coming to Google Classroom that are going to help teachers a lot with classroom management, Uh, the ability to create a rubric that you can then reuse. Uh, That's all in beta right now. I've been testing it out, and it's been really helpful. Google Classroom is, is in a standby that we've been talking about for a few years now, but it keeps getting updated with responses to teacher needs. And it actually didn't make my top five, but because of how you couched the introduction, I felt like I had to bring it up. The, the way they're making it easier for teachers to do their jobs and be efficient and be um, collaborative with each other, not just the kids collaborating, but teachers working together. All those changes are, are coming soon, and we're really excited about it. Awesome. awesome. So my list, I kind of looked at it in the sense that these aren't necessarily tools. Some of them are. But Mine are more things to do. So what kinds of things should we be doing in 2020? And my number one, man, protect the privacy of yourself and protect the privacy of your students. This is a huge thing right now. I think there are clear gaps in kids' knowledge about risks online. And despite the fact that they're rapidly increasing usage among children, they just lack the critical thinking and the digital skills to check out the safety and credibility of these sites that they're visiting and the data that they are just willingly giving away. And it's not just our students. I think it's our educators and our adults, too. So I think... Thank you you for adding that. (laughs) I know. I know. We all could do better. I honestly think the students have a better handle on it than... We all could do better. Many, many adults. So some of my favorite resources for this, um, Common Sense Media has an amazing privacy training, which I think is really comprehensive. Um, they're a little, it's a little module. I think it takes about 45 minutes, but it really gives you a good handle on what kinds of things you should be looking for when you're going to use an online service. So I like that one. Um, they also did recently a privacy risks and harms report. So they went through some of the data that they found based on kids' knowledge and teachers' knowledge and things we could be doing better in the case of privacy. So that's a good read. The FERPA Sherpa is one of my new favorites. Um, Just for the name. <laughs> right? It's <laughs> it's fantastic. Teachers. And they talk about things like state student privacy laws. Does your state have any laws or surrounding this? They're essentially the Education Privacy Resource Center. And they're there to help you find information, tools, news, and opinions on maintaining student data privacy. Um, and it comes out of the Future Privacy Forum. So it's legit stuff. Um, the content is really quality. So um, FERPA Sherpa is 
um, on my list. And then we were talking about this at the data center the other day. I think as an adult, you should check the data that is already out there for you. Check on those data points and see what kinds of things you can scale back on. Um, there's a great thing online called a data detox kit. So datadetoxkit.org. And it's um, seven tips. So I think seven days they send you different things that you can do to help control your digital privacy, security, and well-being. So they tell you things like, hey, you should check on your social media because, for example, Facebook checks your location. And when you walk into Target, they sell that data to companies. So can you check and take that off? Well, yes, you can. <laughs> they also offer something new, um, a voter's guide, seven tips to detox your data in the run-up to an election. So I think that's important, too, because you know that you're going to be marketed towards in the coming election. So how can you try to do that little bit of a detox before? That is a great, right? a great thing. It, it's amazing how your searches and your online habits work into that algorithm and create an echo chamber. We had that digital citizenship pod for the 100th episode, and we talked a lot about this, but it was funny, I had a moment yesterday, you know, doing a lot of the Christmas shopping as we do the holiday shopping, and uh, we were just having a conversation about a, an item that I've never searched for before. <laughs> um, we all know how this ends, yeah, right? Started the search and bam, it didn't even pop up, it, 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 the predictive text yeah. came up. And I'm one that I don't really have a lot of smart devices in the home. I really try to turn off most of that stuff, and it's still something was still listening, and it's just, it was just, I'm like, oh come on, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely my number one. Moving into 2020, as an adult, go through, tidy up your apps, clean up your location footprints, reduce your traces, try to figure out how you can detox your data, and then start talking to your kids about that too. My um nine year old and I had a great conversation the other day about behaviorally tracking and advertising, like just. It's easy to throw out, you know? We're not talking tinfoil hat here. We're no. Talking, we're, but, but, but being aware of... But they were right on some yeah. things. Yes. They were right on some things, yes. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, that's number one. <laughs> David, what you got? So, you know, we've run into some issues with, um, with YouTube where it's not going to be available for users under 13, and we're going to have some issues with maybe content being more difficult for kids to get to. And there's a, a resource that has been popping up recently called Great Big Story. Uh, I want to go through the, the privacy policy with Danielle because, frankly, I've looked at it. But I want to make sure that, like, you know the ins and outs. I outs-. want to give you a high you, five for that. You, you, Woo! Know, you know the keywords to look for. And some of these phrases, I'm not entirely sure what that means. And I know Danielle does. So Great Big Story, um, it has mini shorts, which are like one minute long. These are documentary videos. Or other ones that go from three to ten minutes. So they're all bite-sized mini documentaries from around the world. They're, they're stories from a hundred different countries. There's over two thousand short videos to choose from. They're all themed. There's playlists, and it's a easy resource for quick consumption of information in video format. So that it's not a, a fifty-minute video, and you have to select the part that you're going to show. It's interesting stories about interesting people and interesting places and interesting ideas, again from around the world. It is owned by um, CNN, and there's no login needed to view the stories. And that's one of the things that I really liked about it. I want to make sure that the yeah, collection of data you. from the device is okay because that's where it gets yeah, the yeah. technical stuff. I'm not as up on, but there's no login required to view it, and so we don't have personally identifiable information being collected on our 
on our kids. David, this is super cool. Like I'm looking at it right now and you've got a celebrating women's history playlist. There's a thing on travel reimagined to just discover the coolest hidden gems and natural wonders our world has to offer. Mm-hmm. Thailand's white temple. Like this is really cool. And as the, the video lengths are between the really short ones are one minute, but most of them tend to be between three and 10. And if video research is that short, I would think that every curricular area would be able to gather something you can spare three minutes in your math class to make a geometric connection using architecture or whatever coursework it happens to be. From what I've seen, the videos are well-made, they're well-produced, they're accurate and informational, and they're sponsored by a news organization. And so it's not somebody's blog. These are a bunch of videos about where I've been in my travels and here's the things that I think are true. It's journalism sponsored by a journalism organization. And I love that it's global, that it's over 100 different countries and so many opportunities for connection points. Teachers have been using video for a long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the real sticking points is finding the content and then the time-consuming task of getting that content into a manageable and digestible size for the class. That's just a lot of time. Working with video, speaking from experience, Mm -hmm. not a quick thing. Mm -hmm. As much as you want it to be, it's not. So, I mean, this is a great time saver and then giving authentic application to the subject matter that you're teaching. Awesome. Yeah. Great opportunities for... And we've lost Daniel. (laughs) This is super cool. They're talking about the Kool-Aid man's voice and how they struggled to get the sound right. They're talking about how Betty Crocker is not a real person and that's her origin (laughs) story. (laughs) Um, I want to continue on what you're talking about because I I do think finding credible sources is important. My next one is going to be the New York Times. What's going on in this graph? That is such a great resource. Right? So the New York Times puts together weekly and they send them out if you get on the mailing list. Um, They're graphs, maps, and charts from the Times and then they have an invitation for students to discuss them live. But what I think is the coolest part about this is you're looking at real data. Yep. And it's it's relevant and it's authentic and they they don't give you any context. They have I think there's like three days where you just have to look at it and figure out what's going on. Like what is this bar graph telling you about the average greenhouse gas impact versus the food that it wasted? And you're trying to figure it out. So there's a lot of um, student led learning and cognitive things that are happening when kids are trying to figure it out. And then towards the end of the week, they give you the article that goes along with it so you can learn more about the topic. But this is just a phenomenal resource for teachers. Every single math teacher should be using this it at really every level. Is. And one of the big pushes in social studies lately has been interpreting information graphics, which we, is what We all is, need help right? with that, right? We all do. <laughs> I've used that resource in my sociology class. But whether it's in sociology, whether it's uh, frankly, I think reading this kind of text is something that we can teach in language arts. Um, how do we use our traditional reading strategies to interact with something that's not just text? And those are applicable. Um, and so across the curriculum, you know, dealing with information graphics, dealing with just information, uh, recognizing where you can look for things like where's this information sourced from? being able to recognize the difference between the x-axis and the y-axis and what the bars represent and how far the scale goes. All those things are are things that our kids could be practicing in probably just about every classroom. And they're all different. Like there's, there's a map of the United States and the colors mean different things. And then there's a line plot and there's some bar graphs. Mm-hmm. And it's so every week it's an engaging times graph paired with this protocol of what do you notice? You ask kids, what do you notice? What do you wonder? What do you think is going on? And that's one of the 
such an important skill of kids being able to interact with information. I'm going to throw this one in there. It's not one of my five, but I'm going to throw it in there because I have an opportunity to. Census.gov has a wealth of resources related to data interpretation, and they put out an email weekly to teachers that's useful for statistical analysis, again, in math class or for social analysis, for a, a look at demographics across the country. Another great opportunity for kids to interact with information, infographs. It's coming from census.gov. And we've got a new census coming up, I think. Yep. So the latest information is from 2010. I was actually just using some data today about immigrants who come to the country who already have la English language skills. And uh, it's interesting to see the kids anticipate where they think that number is going to be. And then you've got the data in multiple graphs demonstrating where it really is. And just to see them be amazed by that moment that, wow, this isn't just a story I heard about somebody I know. Sometimes the narrative is a little bit different than Sometimes the Sometimes the narrative is different than the data. And it's, it's fun to see that. And that happens when you can present them with cool data. That was a double. We both love that one. National Geographic is partnering with, I'm not even sure who they're partnering with. I'm still trying to figure it out. There are two different sites that I found this weekend. Um, thank you, Colby Sharp, who's been sharing some amazing things on his Instagram, by the way. <laughs> um, so in the realm of video field trips, there's some work being done by National Geographic Explorer Classroom, and you can actually talk to explorers that are out there doing amazing things. But it's also connected to this website called exploringbytheseat.com. And um, exploring by the seat of your pants is what it's called. <laughs> and they have guest speakers and virtual field trips with leading experts from around the world. And you can broadcast it live in your classroom from the most remote regions on the planet. I mean, it is phenomenal. The places, a turtle hospital, a toucan rescue ranch, an aquarium in Canada, um, something happening up in Vancouver. They just did one up in the Arctic. It is a phenomenal resource. And I think anytime you can bring those experiences into the classroom, you're just going to enrich the, the learning for Absolutely. the kids. So Kids love animals in the outdoors. Right. And there's no reason why you shouldn't be connecting with explorers. So um, yeah. exploringbytheseat.com and then um, National Geographic Explorer Classroom are two. The resources are kind of similar on both, which is why I think that they're connected. But what else you got, David? You had some really good resources that I had. I do. I have before. one called Capwing, but I want it to be called Kapwing. We could do that. Change I, approved. So this is... Pretty new to me. It was actually on Cult of Pedagogy list. And so this one's pretty new to me, and I played around with it. And again, what I love about it, no login required. We don't have to worry about PII. I think we but have a theme here. What it does... I'm getting an, to him. It's an image editor. Oh, totally. It's an image editor. It's a meme maker. And it's even a video editor without a login required. So what you can do at the end, if you cl just click on share, it's going to ask you to log in. But if you publish it, then it creates a link to that, and it's just anonymously published to their site. So I can make a meme. I made one yesterday, of course, with Baby Yoda, of him saying something. Baby Yoda. I know who Baby Yoda is now. Yeah. Thanks, Larry. Saying something um, clever about sociology. And I hit publish, and then I grabbed the link, and I was able to just put that link up on my classroom page, and it goes straight to that image. No login, no data being collected. You know, there are some older generation meme generators that are out there that are clunky and there's all sorts of odd stuff connected to them. I'm still in the early stages of looking at this. I want to make sure that it's a place we want to send our kids. 
but it looks like it has great potential. Basically, you're giving a list to Danielle for her to... I'm on it. Right. I like your cap wing that says tasks that take hours in iMovie reduced to just a few clicks. Yeah. That's pretty helpful. We don't have time for anything I haven't used the video editor yet. I've used the image editor and the meme maker. It's so easy. Our kids communicate with each other in memes. That's just a, one of the new ways that they talk. And I think we miss an opportunity to engage them in whatever they're learning when we don't allow them to communicate in memes about that topic. We can be uncomfortable with some of the <laughs> some of the jokes that they create or the content that they create given their cultural point of view and perspective. But that process of creating memes is a meaningful literacy task. If they're creating a meme about a historical moment or about the process of learning some procedure in, in chemistry lab, you know, they're processing that information. They're demonstrating they're doing it understanding. Yeah, they're doing it differently than we did back in the 1980s. Which is different than they did in the 1970s. Which is different, which is different than, they than, did than the, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to segue from that. Um, so continuing on our ed tech things to do in 2020, mm-hmm. I think you should, teach, you should teach <laughs> students and yourself how to use online images legally. Yes. We can't just be grabbing anything from Google, copy-pasting, pasting it into your own work. So that is an important conversation to have with students. Google especially makes it really, really easy mm-hmm. to search... Um, four images that are labeled for use with modification. So that way you know that you can take them and you can modify them and you can do whatever you want. And it's important for kids to know that piece is there. Um, Mm -hmm. Or they can always create their own images on Google Drawing. I think that's a possibility too that we need to be sharing with kids. But even at the elementary level, man, they can be citing their images and telling where they got them from and only using images that are legal. We ran into a thing the other day with EasyBib is not allowed to be used with students under 13, right? right. So we were trying to figure out how can we resolve this because it's still a thing we want them to do and we still need kids younger than 13 to cite their sources. And it took a while and it took some, that's not going to work, that's not going to work, that's not going to work, but we found formatically. It's not as powerful as EasyBib. It does many of the same things, but I think it might rely on a little bit more manual entry of some information. But in terms of creating like a simplified or a basic bibliography list of citations that we talked about as being something that was necessary at the middle grades level and below, it'll do that and it'll do it without a login. You can connect it to your Google Drive and it'll create a bibliography of the sources you listed and put it in your Google Drive. But without a login, you can still copy the list of sources that you created and paste it into your document without connecting those two things. One of the things it will do is if you use a website, you tell it you used a website, you just put in the URL, you hit enter, and it brings back the citation in MLA format. It's a quick, easy generator that doesn't require a login, and it's something that we can pass on to our middle and elementary level teachers and say, go forth and cite your sources. Nice segue. The last one that I have to share is... um EdTech things to do in 2020. Please try some reverse engineering. Try some take-apart stations. We've been doing take-apart stations with technology for a really, really long time. Recently, we've kind of run out of tech things to take apart. So now we're taking apart toys. And now we're taking apart household items like fans and toasters. It is so cool to see what is inside of these random objects that 
we have around our house. Like those uh, little people buses that the people move when you drive it mm-hmm. and then it makes mm-hmm. a little sound. Man, taking that thing apart and seeing the logistics of how those people are moving and how that sound happens, it was so cool and there was so much learning. And um, we've done it in a couple classrooms recently and it is amazing to see um, the engagement and the, the oh my gosh, the no way, what does that thing do? And even if as a teacher, like, I am not a professional. I don't know what all those wires and I know the green thing is a circuit board of some sort, but (laughs) I don't know what all those things are and what they mean, but you don't have to. I think you you can get some tools and sometimes you can get those donated um, from your local hardware store, but you just need a couple simple tools and you need some random stuff to take apart. I think there's so much learning that happens and it's good for kids to see how that stuff is made. So do a take apart station in your classroom. That sounds super fun. And it's super fun, right? Who doesn't want to just take something apart? What an experience it might be for some of these elementary kids to have that take apart day at the technology academy with those kids with them. That would be amazing. They could run that. Introducing them to vocational education Mm -hmm. at a much, much younger age to not take things for granted as far as how things work. Yeah. Yeah. Just having that curiosity, developing that curiosity early is... Mm -hmm. Is great. And, you know, I do a lot of these things with my own kids. And so we got this Polar Express train that goes around our tree. And it's so loud. So instantly, my my, four, my fourth grader is like, I wonder if we could take that apart and see what's inside and see how the sound comes and how we can dim that sound. Like, yes. That's, great. that's exactly the kind of thinking that I want. For, for younger kids, stop at Goodwill. Have them pick out a thing. Yeah. Whatever it is. And then bring it home and have a take-apart night. Sure. That'd be so much fun. I'm going to put out two at once because they're they're older resources, but they've each been um, super helpful for me and for teachers that I know. And for example, Flipgrid, the first one I'm going to mention, recently purchased by Microsoft, now available totally free for teachers and students. Um, I don't remember exactly when that purchase happened, but I have world language teachers who use it to be able to see and hear how their students are enunciating the language, to hear how they're fluent when they speak and whether or not they can speak without pausing. That's a great way for teachers to be able to have a kind of face-to-face with every student without having to take time out of the class to go one at a time. Such an economic use of time. The other one is Edpuzzle. Speaking of these videos from Great Big Story and how we leverage the, the information with our kids and how we get the kids engaged, Edpuzzle allows you to upload a video and then ask have the the video pause and a question will be asked and the student has to answer it before they move on. You can even set it for the multiple choice. They have to get it right before they move on. And it's a great way to engage students with video where video tends to be passive. And so if you can turn it into a video that includes required responses, the kid's engagement improves just because it has to. (laughs) If they're going to have any effort at at answering these questions, they're going to have to engage in the material. And so I found that to be really helpful, especially in sociology. I used to use it when I was gone as a a subplan, and I still do, honestly. I'll give them a 12-minute video that has maybe half a dozen or so questions. I know about how long that's going to take them. But I found, too, that if I assign that during the classroom time when I'm there, and I can be available to move around the room and see how kids are engaging. I get feedback while they're watching it from hearing how they're responding to the video information and hearing them discuss the questions with their with their neighbor or their table partner. 
and they have an opportunity to clarify in a way that if I just showed the video in class without this tool, I wouldn't be hearing that interaction. I wouldn't be getting those questions. They would just be sitting, listening, looking at the paper that they might have in front of them with a list of questions. It creates a different kind and a different depth of engagement that you just don't see when you're just showing. You're, you're cloning yourself. Right. When you just show a video, the teacher tends to stand there and watch it with them. Which so doesn't really, isn't really a very efficient use of my time. But when I have students watching it themselves and I'm able to move around the room, I can actually teach while they're watching the video. You know, David, I'd wanted to put Flipgrid on my list as well, but I saw that it was on yours. Um, what I love about Flipgrid is that it's a great entry point for all kids. Mm -hmm. I think about those kids that... I used to have in my classroom that, man, they knew so much about the content or about the topic that we were talking about. But they the, the physical act of writing it mm -hmm. or typing it, mm -hmm. they just couldn't get past that. They couldn't get that information out. Sure. So thinking that now I can just put the question on a grid, have the students answer through video, I, I'm still finding out whether they know the content. I'm still being able to tell how much they gained from the classroom instruction. Why can't I assess them that way instead of having them physically type it or handwrite it? Like, yeah. we need to be thinking more about that, that sure. something like this would encompass all kids. And that's where, uh, you know, our differentiation comes from. My sociology exam involves reading something they've never read before in a topic, a category we've, we haven't discussed. We've done gender. We've done uh, race and ethnicity. We've done social class. We've done a number of different ones. We don't talk about the sociology of education. So their final exam question is about sociology and education. The plan is, and it may be Flipgrid that I use for it, that they can respond to the um, analysis questions either in writing or by speaking. And there's going to be a rubric for the question that'll include the kinds of expectations that are, this is what your response will look like to get this level. You can do that either in writing or you can do it verbally. I need to get to a place where we're all comfortable with that. Yeah. We're not there yet. We're not But there I'd yet. like to be because that's what's best for kids. If the goal is to be able to make connections across curricular areas or to uh, explain uh, some concept with the language of sociology, if they can do it by speaking it as well as they could do it by writing it, then why wouldn't we want the best they have to offer? I think that's a really interesting way to look at really showing authentic understanding and authentic mm -hmm. learning. Right. When I still sit in meetings with teachers and they still say, no, they have to write. No, it's really important that they write five sentences here. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Why is it? My kids will often ask me because they've been trained, how long does it have to be? That's my favorite, least favorite question. It's my most common least favorite question, at least. And I always say, as long as it takes to answer the question or as long as it takes to tell your story. Uh, we're doing a personal narrative in creative writing right now. And I had a girl come up today. Well, how long does it have to be? But it wasn't that she wanted to know how little she had to write, but she wanted to do it correctly. And I'm using air quotes if you're not seeing me. Because in her experience, length has something to do with correctness. You know, maybe I got lucky with some of my models early on in my teaching career, but I've always had that answer for kids. How long does it have to be? As long as it takes to answer the question. If it's a complex question, it's going to require a complex answer. And so it's not going to be a couple sentences. That's different than saying it has to be five sentences long. Because a kid that can explain that in 12 sentences, another one might only take four. 
Imagine how short idea. our meetings would be if we actually educated our, our students to become adults that were able to verbalize their thoughts quickly and succinctly. Yeah. <laughs> sure. there's, there's some efficiency. Yeah. So I think we had our tech tool of the week. So I'm guessing we had a lot of tech lot tools of, okay. this week so, for sure. Uh, I just wanted to real quick for tutorials and updates. Just mention again that we had the hundredth episode of the EdTech Loop podcast. Yay! Celebrate! Great job, guys! So proud of everybody that's been involved in this. I think we've had some great content over the years. It was kind of funny going back through the stuff and seeing some of the old pictures. But the hundredth episode was awesome. Um, it was a, a digital citizenship just blowout. There was so much great information. If you're a parent, it's 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 a must listen. Besides that, in closing, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TCAPS Loop. At Brostrom DA. At Technologist. Subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Downcast, Overcast, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or wherever else you get your ear candy. Leave a review. We love the feedback. Thanks for listening and inspiring. Larry. I'll put you on Twitter. <laughs>